Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Thank you very kindly. Mr. Chairman, members of this very fond organization, the National Association of Radio Announcers, distinguished dais guests, ladies and gentlemen, I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here this evening and to share with you in your annual convention. I must apologize in the very beginning for being late tonight and for holding you up. I flew in today from San Francisco where I had to address the National Association of Real Estate Brokers last evening. And after a rather long and tiring flight, I found myself with endless appointments and endless paperwork to do because the 10th Annual Convention of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference will open in this very hotel on Monday evening. And I have the responsibility of doing a lot of paperwork in order to get ready for that convention and a lot of last-minute things came up that I did not anticipate. And I certainly appreciate your patience and your kindness and your willingness uh, to wait. I'm indeed grateful to Brother Jones for these very kind and gracious words of introduction. As he introduced me, I felt something like the old maid who had never been married. And one day she went to work, and the lady for whom she worked said, Anne, I hear you're going to get married. She said, no, I'm not going to get married, but thank God for the rumor. know that all of these marvelous things that have been said about me can't be true, but thank God for the rumor. I valued a special opportunity to address you this evening, for in my years of struggle, both north and south, I have come to appreciate the role which the radio announcer plays in the life of our people. For better or for worse, you are opinion makers in the community. 
And it is important that you remain aware of the power which is potential in your vocation. The masses of are almost totally dependent on radio as their means of relating to the society at large. They do not read newspapers, them through jet. Uh, television speaks not to their needs, but to upper-middle-class America. One need only recall the Watts tragedy and the quick adoption of the burn, baby burn slogan to influence of the radio announcer on the community. But while the establishment was quick to blame the tragedy of Watts, most unjustly on the slogan of Magnificent Montague, it has not been ready to acknowledge all of the positive features which grow out of your contribution to the community. No one knows the importance of tall Paul White and the massive nonviolent demonstrations of the youth of Birmingham in 1963. Are the funds raised by Purvis Spann for the Mississippi Summer Project of 1964? Are the consistent fundraising and voter education done for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Civil Rights Movement by Georgia Wood, my good friend of Philadelphia. <laughs> Tonight I want to say thank you, not just to these few, but to all of you who have given leadership to our people in thousands of unknown and unsung ways, we would certainly not have come so far without your support. And in a real sense, you have paved the way for social and political change by creating a powerful cultural bridge between black and white. School integration is much easier now that they share a common music, a common language, and enjoy the same dances. You introduced youth to that music and created the language of soul and promoted the dance which now sweeps across race, class, and nation. It is quite amazing to me to hear the joyful rhythms which I found time to enjoy as a youth here in Atlanta years ago, coming back across the Atlantic with an English accent, or to see... or to see the Senator Javits and... The Senator Kennedy's lost in the dances which we created. 
Yes, you have taken the power which old Sam had buried deep in his soul and throughout amazing technology performed the cultural conquest that surpasses even Alexander the Great and the culture of classical Greece. But my brothers and my sisters, we're on the beginning. We still have a long, long way to go. And I would like to share with you the burden on my heart about the problems which still confront us. And if I would use a subject for what I would like to say to you this evening, I would call it transforming a neighborhood into a brotherhood. And I want to try to tell you the truth tonight. I want to speak honestly and frankly about many problems that we face in our nation and that we face in the world. For America sorely needs to hear the truth at this time. And I still believe that freedom is the bonus you receive for telling the truth. As Jesus said, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, transforming a neighborhood into a brotherhood. Now there can be no gain saying of the fact that America has brought the nation and the world to an awe-inspiring threshold of the future. We've built machines that think and instruments that peer into the unfathomable ranges of interstellar space. We've built gargantuan bridges to span the seas. And gigantic buildings to kiss the skies. And through our airplanes we've dwarfed distance and placed time in chains. And our jet planes have, con have literally compressed into minutes distances that once took weeks and months. Bob Hope talked about this new jet age in which we live once. He said it is an age of stopped flight from Los Angeles, California to New York City, a distance of about 3,000 miles. And if on taking off in Los Angeles you develop hiccups, you will hick in Los Angeles and cup in New York City. 
You know, it is possible because of the time difference to take a non-stop flight from Tokyo, Japan on Sunday morning and arrive in Seattle, Washington on the preceding Saturday night. And when your friends meet you at the airport and ask when you left Tokyo, you will have to le- say, I left tomorrow. <laughs> this is what our nation has done through the invention of the Wright brothers right on down to the present day. Yes, through our spaceships, we've literally carved highways through the stratosphere. And through our submarines, we've penetrated oceanic depths. All of this is a dazzling picture of modern man's scientific and technological progress. But what I want to say to you tonight, my friends, is that when we look to the other side, something basic is missing. We suffer from a kind of poverty of the spirit which stands in glaring contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. We've learned to swim the seas like fish and to fly the air like birds, and yet we have not learned the simple art of walking the earth as brothers and sisters. And this is the great dilemma facing America. Oh, it comes to this point now. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. three things that we must deal with if we are going to transform this neighborhood into a brotherhood. We've got to deal with the problem of racism. We've got to deal with the problem of economic injustice or poverty. And we've got to deal with the problem of war. Now let me start out talking about racism. And more and more, we've got to tell the truth to America about this problem. And the truth means saying to our nation that the roots of racism are very deep in America and they are still here. that racial injustice is still the black man's burden and the white man's shame. Now, admittedly, we've made some strides, we've made some progress, but this shouldn't cause any of us 
to become apathetic or lax or complacent. Recognize that the plant of freedom has grown only a bud and not yet a flower. And the problems that we face are still very serious. Now we hear a lot of talk these days about the so-called white backlash. I want to tell you what the white backlash is. It's merely a new name for an old phenomenon. It is a continued expression of the same vacillation, the same ambivalence that's characterized white society from the very founding of this nation. On the Statue of Liberty, we read that America is the mother of exiles. But it doesn't take us long to realize that America has been the mother of its white exiles from Europe. She has not evinced the same maternal care and concern for her black exiles who were brought to this country in chains from Africa. And it is no wonder that our slave foreparents could think about it and they could start singing in a beautiful soul song, in a beautiful sorrow song. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. <laughs> It was this sense of estrangement and rejection that caused our forebears to use such a metaphor. You see, what has happened is that our nation has constantly made a positive step forward on civil rights, but it has usually simultaneously made a step backwards. There has never been a single solid, determined commitment on the part of the vast majority of white Americans on the question of genuine equality for the black man. In 1863, the Negro was freed from the bondage of physical slavery through the Emancipation Proclamation. But he wasn't given any land to make that freedom meaningful. And you know, it was something like having a man unjustly imprisoned for 30 or 40 years and suddenly you discover that he's innocent, that he's been unjustly jailed for 30 or 40 years. And then you simply go up to the man and say, now you are free. But you don't give him any bus fare to get to town. You don't give him any money to buy any clothes to put on his back. You don't give him any money to get on his feet so that he can rise up once more as a man. But this is what happened to the black man in America. And we must remember this, that at the very same time when America refused to give the black man anything, just said you are free, he was left penniless, illiterate, standing out 
in a situation not knowing what to do and where to go. But we must not forget that at the same time the Negro was being treated like this. America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest. It says that our country was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But it refused to undergird its black peasants who were brought in chains from Africa with an economic floor. And so emancipation for the Negro was freedom to hunger. It was freedom to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without a roof over their heads. Freedom without bread to eat. Freedom without land to cultivate. It was freedom and famine at the same time. And it is a miracle that the Negro has survived. But the white backlash didn't stop there. In 1875, the nation passed the Civil Rights Bill and refused to enforce it. In 1964, the nation passed an even weaker Civil Rights Bill and even to this day has failed to enforce it in all of its dimensions. In 1954, the Supreme Court declared segregation unconstitutional in the public schools. And today, less than 10% of the Negro students of the South are attending integrated schools, which means that we have made 1% progress a year, and if it continues at this rate, it will take another 94 years to integrate the schools. Suburban politicians talk eloquently against open housing and at the same time or in the same breath they contend that they are not racist. All of this tells us, my friends, that the white backlash is nothing new. The fact is that America has been backlashing on the question of genuine equality for the black man for more than 300 years. And this is something that we must realize and that we must see. And this is why I say to you that our job is still difficult. We still need your voices. We still need your support. And there isn't any way to solve this problem without pressure. There isn't any way to solve the problem of racial injustice without persistent, nonviolent pressure. There have been those who felt that it could be done another way. I was a great man in our history, and I do not come to you to criticize him tonight, because I think he was a sincere man. His name was Booker T. Washington. Mr. Washington believed that the problem could be solved through pressureless persuasion. He sincerely felt that. He felt that if you didn't push things too fast and if you didn't 
Bob of the White South. If you didn't try to make the white man do something that he didn't want to do at that particular time, he would ultimately come around. Mr. Washington sincerely felt this, but he misread history. He did follow that approach. He started saying everything that the white people wanted to hear. He was honored for it. He was called the responsible leader. You know, I always get a little worried when I'm referred to as a responsible leader because so often when some people call you a responsible leader, they are really telling you that you are a leader who will not tell the truth on behalf of your people. So often they mean that you are a leader more concerned about your budget than you are concerned about the freedom of your people. So often they really mean that you are a leader willing to say to the white power structure what they want to hear rather than what they ought to hear. Booker T. Washington went on with the notion of pressureless persuasion. And the reactionary forces of the white South used that only to plunge deeper into the oppression of the Negro. He told us to let our buckets down where we were, and the problem was that there wasn't much water in the well. And somewhere we must come to see that we must rise up and stand on our own two feet and say to our white brothers, that we are determined to be men. This is what the movement is saying. We are somebody. We are determined to gain our freedom. And we are going to start with ourselves by freeing our own psyche, our own souls. This is where we've got to start first. For you see, in the final analysis, if we're going to be truly free, nobody else can do that for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do that for us. No Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill. If we're going to be truly free, we must reach down into the inner depths of our being and sign with the pen and ink of assertive Manhood, our own emancipation proclamation. And we must come to say, yes, I'm black, but I'm black but beautiful. I'm somebody. I have a rich and noble heritage, however exploited and painful it has been. And I've made a contribution to this history. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, Donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs bound together into just one practical book in the link below.